Good morning, church. Good morning. So glad that y'all are here. Hope you've received a blessing already as we have taken uh, the Lord's Supper and that we have uh, worshiped together this morning. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. We are moving right along. We will be at the halfway point of the book after today. And we talked about how these three chapters have really just been a beautiful, lengthy explanation of the gospel. Um, The title of the message this morning is Get It. Not get it exclamation point, like, you know, get it, but get it as in question mark, as in do you understand this? Do you, do you get it? Because what we see happen in this book is Paul explains the gospel and he just lays out truth for this church. And then he stops and he prays in our passage today and says, I really pray the Father help this church see how amazing you are. Paul wants that breakthrough moment of understanding and enlightenment. I was thinking about when do we experience those times of breakthrough and of comprehension in our lives? What I thought of was just so many times during our years in school. There's times when the light bulb comes on. Remember sitting in class or having a teacher explain a concept to you that you just couldn't understand, and it seemed so difficult, but then suddenly the the light bulb came on, and something that seemed so hard before is now very easy because we had that moment where things made sense. Um, I remember one time my brother, who's a little bit older than me, was sitting at the kitchen table doing some math problems, and I started looking over his shoulder, and he was doing some problems of addition, and I realized I could do some of the problems that he was doing. I was like, hey, I know that one, I know that one, and he said, okay, well, do you know this problem? And it was a problem similar to uh, 15 plus 7. And I just stared at it for a long time, and I said, I can't do that, and I don't know why I can't do that problem. He looked at it for a minute, and he laughed, and he said, you can't do that because you can't carry the one. And when I heard that term, carry the one, I thought, wow, my brother is an expert mathematician. How many years of dedication and hard work did it take to learn this extremely intricate function, carry the one? I stand before you this morning, not very good at math, still today, but I can carry the one. I've had that moment of comprehension. I get it now. And Paul wants the Ephesians church to get it. And how does he uh, take some next steps for them to comprehend the beauty of the gospel? He stops and he prays. So let's read in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him, who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. 
Lord, we thank you for this prayer that we see Paul pray in this passage, Father, that people would get it, that we would see the truth of the gospel, and it would change everything about us. So, Father, I pray by the power of your spirit that we would have some supernatural, divine comprehension this morning, that we would walk out of here recognizing and getting it and understanding just how incredible you are. In Jesus' name, amen. And y'all, I've got some points that we'll talk about this morning as we go through the passage, but I really just want us to do two things before we dive in this morning. I want us to first ask the question, why does Paul end his explanation of the gospel with a prayer? Why does he pray to God at the end of this explanation? He lays out truth, right? He's told us that the gospel was a Trinitarian culture. We were dead in our sins, but God has made us alive. Then he told us how the gospel had changed his life in the first part of chapter 3. And then he just stops and he prays that we would understand everything he's been talking about. Paul understood how people are changed. He knew his role and he knew God's role. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6. He says, I planted Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. And this is important for us to recognize how we do ministry as a church. We can teach people the gospel. We can sing songs. We can put the truth out there. But can I make someone grow in their faith? I can't. This is not a work of man. This is a work of God. And so Paul teaches them, and then he stops, and he says, Father, I need you to help this gospel grow in their lives. Church, and if we are going to be people who are growing constantly in the word and in a relationship with God, we have got to be people of prayer. Prayer is a wonderful practice for a couple of reasons. Prayer helps us recognize and focus on the person of Christ as we do anything. So those of you who have been in church for a little while, you know the difference between going to church the right way and going into church just going through the motions, Right? Going to church, focusing on the word, focusing on our relationship with God, saying, God, show me yourself as I worship you in community. And then we, sometimes we just come and we never even really think about the things of God. We're thinking about what other people said to us on the way in. We're thinking about what we're going to eat for lunch afterward, and we just go through the motions. Those of you who have been in church for a while know the difference between uh, reading your Bible the right way and reading your Bible just going through the motions, right? Treating it as an academic exercise, just opening it, reading it, checking off the box, I read my Bible today. And y'all, prayer helps us do those things the right way. When we come into this place to pray and say, God, would you use this time that I'm here at Connection Church Athens? Would you show me yourself? Lord, would you grow me up to be more like Christ? It helps us focus our eyes on Christ. I encourage you, before you read your Bible every day, pray. Before you open this word, say, Lord, I don't know you as I want to know you, but I believe that you've revealed yourself in your word. This helps us, y'all, by focusing on Christ, making these things more than just a religious activity, but connecting ourselves to the power of God, focusing. Another one, y'all, is this is a humbling posture because it helps us recognize our helplessness in God's power, right? If I never pray before I read my Bible, I'm trusting in that work to make me more holy. And if I could read my Bible enough to make myself holy, then that would be a works-based gospel. But we recognize that God's got to meet me here. My high priest has got to meet me when I read the word. And so I need to be praying. So I'm focusing on him and focusing on his power. And when we don't pray, what we're saying without saying anything is that we don't need God. 
Perhaps you've heard this quote before, prayerlessness is a declaration of independence from God. To neglect prayers, to say, God, I don't need you. I heard a quote this week that was very similar. It says, we never have to tell God we don't need him anymore. Just stop praying regularly, and he gets the message. And so if we are not people of prayer, y'all, we're probably saying by saying nothing at all, God, I don't need you. And so this prayer itself, situated in this book, is a wonderful example for us to understand exactly how Paul saw the need for people to grow, where the power source is and the key was for spiritual growth. The second thing I want to do before we walk through this passage is I want to show you a little bit of how this passage is constructed. And to do this this morning, I've asked my friend Lucas to come help me out. So Lucas, will you come up here? Let's give it up for Lucas. They clapped before you did anything, man. That's pretty good. The Bible is the most well-written book ever. People will debate the theology with you, but everybody understands from a, you come right here. From a perspective of literature, this book is head and shoulders above anything else. Lucas, this prayer today that we're studying is a poem. Do you ever study poetry in school? A little bit. A little bit. You guys know that when we do poetry in our language, we rhyme, right? I'm a poet. I didn't know it. Things like that. Hebrew poetry did not work this way. They didn't rhyme. They made their poems by parallel themes. So they would mention things in certain orders. And this prayer is a poem called a chiasm. It's kind of a big word. It's called a chiasm. It's from the, R, from the Greek letter chi, which looks like our letter X. So when we graph out this poem, the themes are going to look like an X if you took the X and cut it from top to bottom. So it's not going to look like an X. It's really going to look like a greater than sign. Is that cool? Now, I know from some of you, you're like, okay, I don't even understand that. There's going to be a central point in this prayer and then we're going to see parallel themes in one order and then reverse order centered around that parallel theme. We didn't get that at all of what I just said, but we're going to see it this morning because we're going to use the TV case as our blackboard. So if you can navigate around all those things, I'm sorry, and grab the first one. We're going to start with the center. What's the main theme of this passage? Well, the message this morning is called Get It. And so we see in verse 18 the first thing that we need to get it. Good job, man. Stick it down good. Look at verse 18 with me. What does it say? It says that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints. This is the center of the poem, that we would get it. Now, notice the themes as we go through. We could look at the parallel themes as we go out, but we're just going to go verse by verse through the passage. So if you want to grab the very first one. So let's start in verse 14. Notice this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Verse 14, nations. You're good, man. There you go. What does it say in verse 15? He says, from every family in heaven on earth derives its name. So he first mentions the nations. Go way out. Wait, like right there. There you go. Good job. There we go. He first mentions the nations. He says, from every family in heaven on earth that derives his name. And then the next one in verse 16, he says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. So then he talks about nations, and then he talks about glory. Nice, sweet. Let's keep going. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, verse 16, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So we see nations Glory, power. You're doing good, man. 
verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love. Nice. Verse 18, may be able to comprehend with all the saints. So y'all see we've gotten to the center. I'm going to put this one in this. So when we come to halfway through our passage, he's talked about nations, glory, power, love, and then he says he wants us to get it. Now let's see the chiasm in verse 18 and 19. May be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. He mentions love. He says he wants us to comprehend it. And then next he mentions love again. Let's keep going. Which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Verse 21. To him be the glory. Sorry, now we're going fast, man. You're doing good. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. To all generations, all nations, every family in heaven and earth. This is a chiasm. It's pretty cool. Let's give it up for Lucas. Dude, you look like you did about like I would do. These lines, pretty cool. Do y'all see the greater than, less than sign? It's like half of an X. Be good, man. It's awesome. You're like, Liam, I don't care. I really don't care about this. What do I want you to walk away with thinking about this? One, I think we should walk away worshiping God. God wrote a book to reveal himself to you, and it is the most beautiful book that has ever been written. It has symmetry like this plastered throughout. This is not the first chiasm in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is one as well. There are dozens of these in the Bible. Some people argue that the entire Bible is a chiasm that starts with creation and ends with recreation, and at the center is the cross. There are other poems as well. There are acrostic poems that we see in the Old Testament as well. The entire book of Lamentations is arranged in a, by a Hebrew poem. Psalm 119 is an acrostic poem. Proverbs 31 is an acrostic poem. And y'all, if you believe the Bible is just another book, you don't know the Bible. And the more we dive deep into understanding the literature and the beauty and the symmetry, we recognize God is a better writer than anybody else. He did something pretty incredible. The structure of the passage, though, the second thing I want you to walk away with is understanding, y'all, what he wants us to get. The structure tells us what he wants us to get. The goal is comprehension, that we would get it. He wants us to understand the love of God, the power of God, the glory of God, and the scope of all three of these things. That God's glory, power, and love would be displayed to the nations. And he's praying, I want them to get it the way the other saints have gotten it. I want them to get it the way I've gotten it. I want them to get it the way Peter has gotten it. As well. And so the points this morning as we study this passage were really, really easy. I'm going to ask you do you get how glorious he is? Do you get how powerful he is? And do you get how much he loves you? First, do you get how glorious our God is? Do you fully comprehend 
his glory. In verse 16, it says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. Six times so far in the book of Ephesians, we've been told that our God is rich. I want to show you these references. If you turn back in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, look at Ephesians 1, 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. God is rich in grace. Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling or the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. God is rich in grace. He is rich in glory. If you turn to Ephesians 2, we see in Ephesians 2.4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. God's rich in grace. He's rich in glory. He's rich in mercy. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 7. So in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Then we go to chapter 3. Ephesians 3, verse 8, it says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. It's like on that one, Paul just circles all of the above <laughs> of God's characteristics, right? He's rich in mercy, grace. Okay, he's just, Christ is rich. And then in our passage today, we're told that he is rich in glory. If you look at verse 16, y'all, we see these two themes tied very closely, glory and power in the same verse. And they're tied to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Let's read verse 16 in its entirety. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. He says that God is going to pour out his glory and his power on you in the inner man through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You know, I think sometimes the quality of glory is intangible. It's kind of hard to put our finger on what exactly is glory. Is that fair? maybe more so than power. Um, we understand that it's this term that describes God's excellence or th that he's beautiful and that he's awesome to behold. It's essentially this idea, y'all, that when God shows up in his fullness, he has no critics, right? He has some critics sometimes when people doubt him and things, but when he shows up, no one will argue that he is glorious. And we see in the scripture, this idea of glory is that wherever the presence of God is, there is his glory. You can follow that, that theme or that thread throughout the Old Testament to understand that wherever God shows up in his presence, this is where his glory is. Consider Exodus chapter 40. Moses is wandering in the wilderness with um, the, the Israelites, and they set up a tabernacle, which was essentially a temple that was portable uh, for them. It was kind of a tent temple. And when they get done building it, this is what it says, Exodus 40, 34, and 35, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It's incredible. They build this place, this temple, this dwelling in the presence of God because it was so glorious. And this is kind of the way we see people and the presence of God interacting. Essentially, they don't. Where God's glory was in its fullness, people could not be until Jesus. 
And then Jesus radically transformed the way we are able to interact with the presence of God. When we fast forward to Acts 2, something incredible happens because the apostles are in that room and we're told the Holy Spirit in the form of tongues of fire comes down and he divides himself and he indwells believers. That's a different story than what happened in Exodus 40. God's presence comes down into the tabernacle and Moses couldn't enter. But then in Acts chapter 2, the presence of God, the glory of God comes into believers. And we're told that the power and glory of God is entering into believers, to those who are followers of Christ, and we are being renewed in the inner man through the power of the Spirit. God's presence was in the temple in the Old Testament, but we see in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul teaches, he says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? God's doing a new thing through the power of the Holy Spirit, and it is to pour out his presence, his glory into our lives. If you are in Christ, you are not disconnected from his glory because his glory is inside of you. And Paul says, do you get it? Are you operating on your Mondays, on your Thursdays, understanding that the presence of God is with you in a way that Moses could only dream about? Do you get it? Do you understand how glory, glorious our God is? And it's so personal here, y'all. He's not talking about a glory or a power that we would witness that it's outside of us. Right? So many times we say, man, I wish I could just see the Red Sea part, or I could just see you know, somebody healed of their leprosy or something like this, and we're craving a miracle that's external. That's like a fireworks show, right? Some of us the past week maybe went and saw some fireworks, like, wow, that was really cool, and then we just kind of walk away and go back to our normal life. This is not the miracle God wants to do in your life. He wants to come inside of you, pour out his glory in your life, pour out his power in your life so that you walk away and you're never the same. He says, do you get the riches of his glory? He wants to give you, grant you, that you would be strengthened with the power through his spirit in the inner man. The idea of glory goes full circle in this passage in verse 21, because he says, to him be the glory. He mentions it in verse 16 and then 21, this idea full circle that God pours out his glory, his presence on believers, and then we are able, because we have been transformed to glorify him with our And this is the beauty of the gospel. God pours out his glory. He regenerates us. He transforms us. And now we are able to glorify him with our lives. Do you get how glorious he is? Secondly, do you get how powerful he is? Do you get how powerful he is? We see the power in verses 16 through 20, right? To be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. And then in verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Where's the power? Is it outside of us? No, it's it's within us. And he says, God can do more with your life than you could ever imagine. God can do more with you indwelt by the Holy Spirit than you could ever imagine. He has the power to do things that you cannot even dream of. I wonder if many of our lives are so twisted up with fear and worry because we're not getting it. We don't understand his glory. We don't understand his power. We don't understand his love. And so we are afraid because we're operating and going through life 
thinking about our own resources and not thinking about the power of God. Anybody else? When something bad happens in our lives, we're not thinking about his strength and his power and how he's going to preserve us during that time. We see ourselves. We recognize we don't have enough resources and we're found lacking. This sort of idea uh, got me thinking of a time maybe about four years ago. It was my first year serving as a youth pastor. And it got to be summertime and it was time to take the kids to camp. We went to huge camps. I had just turned 20 years old. And I was so nervous to take these kids to camp. I had adult help, whatever. And I just knew, I was like, this is my first year taking kids to camp. And I want to do this more years. But I know something's going to go wrong. And the parents are going to hate me. And they're never going to let me do it again. Like, that was my mindset going into this. I was just so scared about doing this. We went to Tennessee. We had a great week. Everything was phenomenal until we started going home. And we were on I-40, just a few minutes out from Waynesville, North Carolina. Now, we had planned to stop at the Chick-fil-A for lunch on the way home. Um, And I was not in the church van. I was in a smaller car kind of at the front of the caravan. And I remember I would be driving and look in my rearview mirror and just say, okay, church van is still there, church van is still there. And one time I looked up, and the church van was no longer there. Turns out it had broken down on the side of I-40. We had a bad alternator. So we started the process of carting kids from the church van to that Chick-fil-A in Waynesville, North Carolina, um, to get them into a safer spot. And so we started calling parents, telling them, hey, we're going to be delayed. We don't know what's going on. Started to call people in our church. And again, somebody in our uh, crew knew that it was an alternator. And we had a guy in our church who was a mechanic. And he said, look, y'all are an hour and a half away. I can buy an alternator, I can be up there, take me an hour to fix it, and then you guys can be on your way. We were planning on getting home at 3 p.m. This was going to put us getting home around 7 or 8 at night. And so we said, okay, let's do that. That was the plan. And so my job during that time was just kind of hang out with the kids in the Chick-fil-A. We ate a lot of good food. The, the workers at Chick-fil-A were just so nice to us the whole time. They just gave us a ton of stuff and, you know, were like, hey, just hang out as long as you need. We played some games in, in a field that was out behind the Chick-fil-A. Um, just a good time. I was having fun. I was thinking, oh, this isn't, that, this isn't that bad. And then I suddenly realized that all of our kids were in the Chick-fil-A except for one kid. And that made me nervous. Like, where in the world is Eli? And so I looked around, and through those you know, big windows at Chick-fil-A, I could see Eli sitting at the outdoor tables. And he looked stressed. He was so twisted up with fear. You could just see it all over his face. So I walked out. Eli, what's up, man? You know, this is not a big deal. We're going to be home before too long. Not, not a big deal. You have a good week at camp, just talking all this kind of things. He wouldn't talk to me, wouldn't say a word. And as I just pried with him a little bit more, suddenly I saw, like, hot tears, like, coming out of his eyes. My heart started to break a little bit. Like, dude, what's the problem? And he said, Liam, I have $5. I have $5. What if the van doesn't get fixed and my little sister can't eat? He's like, all I got is five bucks. I realized he hadn't eaten anything of that Chick-fil-A all day. Because I think he thought, I don't know exactly what he thought. If the van didn't get fixed, I think he thought I was going to leave him. That was one thing that he was afraid of. Or that I, was, I didn't have any money either. And if the van didn't get fixed, we were literally going to be homeless that night. That we had $5 to our name. You know, his $5 and his little plastic wallet was all we had. And he was so afraid. 
And when I figured out that was the issue, I started to laugh a little bit because I knew that we had a lot more resources than just his $5. I was like, dude, you know there's a hotel right behind this Chick-fil-A. Like, if the van doesn't get fixed, I can just go buy us a bunch of rooms. I can go to Walmart. I'll get y'all a bunch of swimsuits. We'll have a pool party. We'll order pizza. We'll get a good night's sleep. And then we'll rent vans and we'll go home. I knew I had my resources to make that happen. But I also knew I had the resources of an entire church, right? And you knew if I called some of those men in that church and said, hey, this is what happened, they would say, money is no object. Just get those kids home safe. I knew the amount of resources we had, and he didn't. He didn't understand the power that we had to deal with the situation. The van got fixed, and we set it off for home again. And I remember just driving back. It was quiet. Everybody was tired. Like they were so hyper before everything happened, but they were just ready to get home. And and it was silent. I just had some time to think. And I started to get a little bit mad um, at Eli because I started to realize that once once I comforted him, that his doubt and his fear and his worry was kind of a knock or an affront to my character and my leadership. And I started thinking, doesn't he know I can take care of him? Doesn't he know that we have the power to deal with this situation? And when I started thinking that, y'all, it was like the Holy Spirit said to me, not in an audible voice, Liam, that's the way you treat me. Liam, you treat me that way. Because when something happens in your life, you do not operate with a supernatural mindset. You think about your resources, and you worry, and you fear, and you stress, and you do not obey me because you do not understand my power. And I didn't get the power of God. So many times, y'all, we sin, we run to things that will never satisfy because we don't understand that God is the good shepherd and that he can take care of us in every situation. Do you get that his power is truly enough for any circumstance? Now to him who can do more abundantly beyond all we ask or think. The last one, y'all. Do we get how glorious he is? Do we get how powerful he is? And then finally, do you get that he loves you? Do you get how much he loves you? We see God's love mentioned twice in this passage, verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. The two descriptions of love in this passage we see is verse 17 first, that we would be rooted and grounded in love. And this is the idea of to be secure and confident in the love of God. Right? Not in a roller coaster of emotions. Does he love me today? Does he love me because I sin today? All these kind of things. Uh, we, we look at ourselves and our lives and our performance, and so we start to doubt the love of God, but to understand, to be rooted and to be grounded is a transforming way, a different mindset. Two biblical pictures that I thought of to kind of communicate this idea. One is in Psalm 1, verse 3, right? The wise man who fixes his eyes on the commands of God. The psalmist says that he will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. I love that picture of someone who's rooted and grounded in God is like somebody who's planted by a stream of water. We're not worried about, is it going to rain, because we're constantly refreshed and nourished in Christ. The other picture I thought of biblically of being rooted and grounded in love is kind of the antithesis of this idea. James 1, 5, and 6 says, 
But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously without reproach. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the winds. He says the one who's not rooted and grounded, but the one who doubts is like somebody who's susceptible to any of the currents of life, right? Pulled by the undertow of the sea. I thought it was so interesting. Ephesians 4.14 has the same imagery. I had no idea. Look at Ephesians 4.14. It says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of man, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. We see the same idea. If we're not rooted and grounded in love, we will fall for anything in our lives because we don't understand the love of Christ. We got to be rooted and we got to be grounded, secure in his love. And then in verse 19, he says, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Even before that, he gives us the dimensions of God's love, right? He says, hey, you need to know the breadth, you need to know the depth, the length, and the height. It's kind of interesting, verse 19 is almost a little bit of a paradox. I want you to know the love of God, which surpasses knowledge, That doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. I want you to know the unknowable. I want you to fathom the unfathomable. What is he saying here, y'all? He's saying that we have the ability to be rooted and grounded in God's love, to know it and to be secure in it, but we can never exhaust it, and we will never find the edges of the boundaries. Brian Chappell said it this way. I think it's so good. Our human tendency is to measure the dimensions of God's love by what we know from our experience. We add according to our blessings and subtract according to our difficulties to estimate how much God loves us. But the apostle says that God's love surpasses our knowledge. Yet all the dimensions of divine love surpass our knowledge. We can still grasp that love if only it's holding on to a leaf of an oak tree. God's love is bigger than I could think. So many of us, we have that human tendency, I love that, to kind of gauge God's love based on how our lives are going. He says to know the love of Christ. How do we gauge God's love? Based on what he did for us, y'all, on the cross and through the resurrection. Say, I know that God loves me because of history. I know what he did for me. I know how he's revealed himself to me. Therefore, I can be rooted and confident in the love of God. I'm going to ask Julie if she'll come back up here for just a moment. And, and what I want us to do to kind of close is I want us to follow Paul's example. We've been walking through these first three chapters of Ephesians for, for a while now, and we've looked at the gospel a lot. And when Paul gets done explaining the gospel, he stops and he prays. And he says, I want you to get it. And church, I think we would not be doing our job if we didn't give all of us an opportunity to just sit for a moment before the Father and say, God, am I really getting what you've done for me? Is the gospel growing in my life? Because so many of us, y'all, maybe you had a moment where you got it and you are in the family of God. You are a child of God, but you have fallen to some temptations recently. Maybe your pride has grown a little bit and you're thinking, I don't, I haven't, I don't get it like I used to. There was a time where I was growing in my faith, but I feel like I'm just stuck. And y'all, in those moments, we got to go back to the source. God still loves you. It's not like you've done too much, that you've reached the boundary of his love, but you've got to run back to the Father. Say, God, show me your glory in a new way. God, I need to see your power. God, help me get it. I can't do that for you, church. 
I can lay the truth of the gospel out for you. I can plant, I can water. That's between you and God. Church, each one of us individually has got to spend some time before him and say, God, would you grow it in my life? I want to see your glory in a new way. I want to see your power in a new way.